Welcome to episode 23 of History Stories for My Son, the podcast where we remember that history is a story that should be shared with every generation. As always, I'd ask that if you like this podcast and would like it to continue, please take a minute to subscribe, rate, review, and share it with your friends. Uh, Also, as I've noted the past couple of episodes, I recently launched a website, historystoriesformyson.com, with articles to accompany the podcast. Somaliland, 1855. Gentleman explorer, diplomat, soldier, scholar, adventurer, Richard Francis Burton, leads a geographical expedition. Its purpose? To find the source of the Nile River in Africa. His party is camped near the Somali port of Berbera, along the southern coast of the Gulf of Aden. He awakens in the dead of night the sounds of combat. An expert swordsman, he grabs his blade and rushes into the night. He is greeted by a firelit scene of chaos. Two hundred fierce, spear-wielding warriors attack with deadly skill. One of Burton's subordinates lies dead, impaled. Another is grievously wounded. Burton wades in, blade flashing, calling out to his men to rally. A warrior hurls a javelin at Burton's face. He flinches, but not fast enough, as the piercing head of the javelin passes clear through one cheek and lodges in his jaw. He has no time to remove it, and fights the remainder of the deadly skirmish with the weapon hanging off the side of his face. Despite that, he manages to escape with most of his men alive. The reason for the attack? Unknown. Perhaps it was Burton's blasphemy a few months earlier in daring to enter the Muslim holy city of Harar, which was forbidden to unbelievers. Perhaps it was just an opportunistic raid. Whatever the reason, it didn't deter him, at least not permanently. And this real-life Indiana Jones would return to complete his expedition and many others in search of hidden secrets. Richard Francis Burton was raised on wanderlust. Born in 1821, the son of an Irish-born British Army officer, Burton grew up all over the place. He spent much of his childhood moving between England, France, and Italy. A natural linguist, he quickly mastered the languages of every place he stayed, and not only the major ones like French, Italian, and Latin, but also more obscure languages and dialects, like Neapolitan and Romani. It is said his first teenage love affair was with a Roma girl, daughter of a people with a kindred spirit to his own. His youthful wanderings were a mixed blessing. They made him comfortable and adaptable in foreign cultures, but they also made him an outsider to his own people. He would later say that the one place on earth he never felt completely comfortable was in his native Britain. When it came time to matriculate at Trinity College, Oxford in 1840, he found himself uncomfortable 
under the stodgy regulations of Victorian England. Despite brilliant linguistic skills and a solid, if idiosyncratic, education at the hands of a succession of tutors and whatever schools he could temporarily attend, he lacked the refinement and deference to authority needed in the highly conformist setting. He quarreled with more affluent students, once challenging a fellow student to a duel after the man made fun of his mustache. The no-doubt terrified bully uh, was quick to apologize, and fortunately, that duel didn't happen. Um, but Burton's disregard for school rules and convention uh, eventually caught up with him. He seems to genuinely have not understood why he should follow anyone else's dictates for how to live his life. Uh, and in 1842, less than two years after matriculating, he was expelled after attending a steeplechase, which, believe it or not, was a violation of the school rules it was considered uh, indecent for the highbrow students to be partaking in such entertainment. Uh, Burton thought that was ridiculous and refused to apologize for it, and they kicked him out. This left Burton in a tough position. It left him, as he put it, fit for nothing but to be shot at for six pence a day. He joined the army, uh, the army of the British East India Company. Yes, the British East India Company had its own army, uh, which was... Uh, organized along the same lines as uh, any national military. And he didn't find military life any more to his liking than he did college at first, uh, because, of course, it was very regimented as well and involved a lot of arbitrary rules and demands by authority. Uh, so in some ways it seems like uh, an odd choice uh, for this iconoclastic young man who didn't like to be confined by rules. But it made sense in a couple of ways. One, it was a paycheck. And two, it was a paycheck that he could collect while living in distant and exotic places. Uh, an opportunity to study oriental life and languages, which is what he really wanted to do. He didn't really care about the British East India Company per se, but he wanted the opportunity to study Indian, Persian, Arab dialects. And it was an opportunity he didn't let go to waste. He very much made a study of local habits, dress and custom, and of local languages. Uh, when he was in India, he studied Hindu culture from an Indian guru. And he so impressed his teacher that he was permitted to wear the traditional janelle, uh, a brahminical thread that marked a student's official acceptance into a school of Hinduism. His intense interest and immersion in local culture and religions made him something of an oddity. Some accused him of, quote, going native. Others just thought him a bit crazy, a perception no doubt enhanced by the fact that he kept a large menagerie of monkeys in the hopes of learning their language. That said, he earned respect for what one contemporary described as his demonic ferocity as a fighter, and because 
He had fought in single combat more enemies than perhaps any other man of his day. That's according to one contemporary. Burton's eccentricity was tolerated by his superiors, uh, not only because he was a fierce combatant, but because his ability to immerse himself in local cultures made him valuable as an intelligence asset. Burton could dress and speak like a local, disappear into crowds, bazaars, places of worship, places of vice, and thereby learn things that ordinary foreign soldiers would never discover. This made him invaluable. Increasingly, he was more of a spy than a soldier. By the time he finished his seven years in India, he probably knew more about the country's culture, uh, and especially the culture of its common people and of its underworld than probably any other European alive at the time. Besides government reports, he went on to write four books about Indian culture that were published after he returned home and generally regarded as some of the best cultural studies of India by a European at the time. Burton's fascination with religions extended to Islam, uh, which, of course, was also present in India, and uh, he would have been exposed to it during his service there. And he decided at some point near the end of his army career that he wanted to study the Hajj, the holiest of holy religious pilgrimage to Mecca undertaken by Muslims. There's only one little problem with that. He was not Muslim, and it was considered a sacrilege, sometimes punishable by death for non-Muslims to go on the journey or see the holy city of Mecca. Burton, being Burton, again, wasn't too much concerned with rules, but he understood that any cultural mistake on the journey could cost him his life. And so he entered into an exhaustive study of Islam and Arab languages and built a persona for himself as a Pashtun pilgrim. Uh, because Pashtuns, it's a word for Afghani Muslims, were from an area even then that was uh, quite remote uh, from most of the Islamic world. He hoped that the guys would help him explain any minor cultural mistakes he might make. He memorized large segments of the Quran and committed so deeply to the Pashtun persona that he had himself circumcised to reduce the likelihood of being detected. Uh, in fact, there's some who say he actually converted to Islam, at least for a time. Uh, regardless, he had to learn minute details of Islamic tradition to successfully participate in the demanding series of rituals that the religion demands of its pilgrims. He succeeded, and after a perilous journey through bandit-ridden country, he made it to Mecca, took extensive notes and sketches, and published a scholarly account of the journey. He wasn't the first non-Muslim to successfully make the journey, but his scholarly and detailed study was... Uh, the best up to his time and the most widely read and respected account of the journey really ever made by an outsider. And the most re remarkable thing about this, I think, is that he did it as a side project. His employers at the British East India Company didn't ask him to do it. 
though he did obtain their leave to do so. Uh, he obtained limited sponsorship from the Royal Geographic Society, who were interested in filling in a blank on their maps. Uh, but the journey wasn't their idea. He conceived, planned, and executed the mission solely out of his own unquenchable desire to learn everything there was to know about a culture that he found fascinating. And then he pulled it off. And it was this trip that uh, made him famous. When he published his account of uh, the Mecca pilgrimage, uh, it was widely read in Europe at the time, and he really could have cashed in on that fame and returned to England, done the lecture circuit, and you know, maybe gotten some academic posting. Uh, but um, that wasn't what he wanted. He he wanted more adventure, more exploration, and he used it to embark on a full-time career as a sort of gentleman explorer adventurer. In 1854, the Royal Geographic Society, together with the Indian colonial government, sponsored uh, an expedition led by him to Somaliland to, to seek out the source of the Nile River. But before following the Nile, he took a side trip to the city of Harar, which, like Mecca, was considered forbidden to non-believers. Uh, he uh, was captured, uh, nominally a guest, but really a prisoner of the town's governor for ten days. Uh, it's unknown exactly what he said to his host, but it must have been good. Uh, rather than being executed, as would have been the usual punishment for an outsider to come to the Forbidden City, uh, he somehow convinced the governor to release him. He emerged from the palace alive and beat a hasty retreat with limited food and water across the deserts, uh, while pursued by uh, less forgiving spears of the entire way. Undeterred by surviving an experience that probably should have killed him, he continued the expedition, which brings us back to the raid mentioned at the start of this story, when Burton caught a javelin to the face for his troubles. Characteristically, Burton took pride in the resulting scar and always insisted that any portrait done of him after that day should show the scarred side of his face. However, the raid, including the death of one officer and severe wounding of another, did have the effect of breaking up the expedition, at least for a while. But Burton was not a man to be thwarted. Two years later, in 1856, he returned to Africa with more funding from the Royal Geographic Society and even obtained a formal commission from the British Foreign Office to search out the sources of the Nile. This time, Burton avoided side adventures and, together with another officer, followed the Nile deep into the heart of equatorial Africa. It was an epic journey which required so much preparation that it wasn't till June of 1857 that it was ready to set out from Zanzibar with a caravan of mercenaries, porters, and scholars totaling 132 people. It was an awful trip, beset by all manner of disease, and the expedition moved slowly through trackless wilderness. But Burton persisted, and in February of 1858, he and his colleagues became the first Europeans to lay eyes upon the Great Lakes of Africa, some of the largest freshwater lakes in the world, uh, surpassed only by 
the Great Lakes of North America. And they found the one that would ultimately prove to be the main source of the Nile. So he succeeded in uh, a geographic feat that hadn't been done up to that day. He followed that up with a fairly random side trip to the United States in 1860, uh, where he traveled to Salt Lake City and studied Mormonism, probably starting to get a theme here that Burton was fascinated by uh, other religions. And when he encountered a new one that he wasn't familiar with, he wanted to learn everything about it. Uh, and... So he went to Salt Lake City. He uh, interviewed Brigham Young and wrote uh, an account of it, The City of the Saints, which is probably uh, the most thorough outsider account of Mormon life in the 19th century. And he did this just kind of as a random side trip to Sate's curiosity about uh, another group of people he, he found intriguing. When he got back from that, he uh, wasn't really sure what to do with the rest of his life. Uh, he'd obtained some measure of fame, but uh, he hadn't really capitalized on it. He still wasn't wealthy. Uh, he still needed a job. And so he, he had kind of the same problem that he'd had uh coming out of his failed college experience uh, where he needed a way to get paid that would also send him to exotic places that he could learn about and study. Uh, and he was getting a bit old for military life, so he went into the diplomatic service and served as a British diplomat from 1861 uh, up until, well, for the rest of his life, till his death in 1890. And he had a, uh, a quite successful uh, diplomatic career. But as with his earlier job uh, as a soldier for the East India Company, his real professional ambition was to have someone pay him to live uh, near places he could study and write about. He spent four years as a consul in Equatorial Guinea, uh, which he used as a launch pad for explorations of West Africa. Then he spent four years in Brazil, where he found time to explore and write about the central highlands and uh, the, the the rural and the common people that uh, really no one else was writing about at the time. He also wrote about the events of the Paraguayan War, which he uh, witnessed firsthand. Finally, in 1868, he returned to the Middle East, receiving the posting that he really wanted uh, as British consul in Damascus. There he did his best to keep the peace between Christian, Muslim, and Jewish communities that were constantly at each other's throats. There he discovered the limits of cultural knowledge and understanding. He tried to use his deep knowledge of all of the peoples involved to empathize with and help everyone work towards a, a common peace. But this pleased nobody. He discovered that uh, sometimes you can't please everybody. One Arab leader who resented his peacekeeping efforts uh, actually tried to have him killed, uh, to have him ambushed. Uh, hundreds of camel riders and horsemen 
uh, tried to ambush Burton on the road, but the old diplomat adventurer proved as slippery as always and uh, rode away unharmed. Uh, he said he actually found it to be an extraordinary compliment that someone thought it would take hundreds of warriors in order to kill him. In the end, even Burton couldn't bring peace to the Middle East, and he was reassigned in 1872 to a sleepier posting in Trieste, Austria-Hungary. This more boring post may have been a blessing in disguise, as it allowed him ample time to write. It was during this period he published many of his most famous works, and many of his most famous works were actually translations of Eastern works, such as The Perfumed Garden, The Kama Sutra, uh, One Thousand Nights in a Night, sometimes called Arabian Nights. His knowledge of the languages and of the cultures involved allowed him to provide more authentic translations than had been done before. Uh, now, he got into a little bit of trouble with this because some of the Eastern texts included uh, themes that were considered quite risque at the time. But uh, he didn't much care about Victorian conventions, as has been mentioned before, and so uh, he produced these rich, beautifully written English translations with annotations, really reflected his deep understanding of Indian and Middle Eastern cultures, and they became instant classics, in particular, his translation of Arabian Nights uh, became the definitive version and is still sometimes considered the definitive version to this day. He introduced generations of Westerners to Alibaba and his 40 Thieves, Sinbad the Sailor, and Aladdin. For his scholarship, he was knighted in 1886 and became Sir Richard Francis Burton. He died four years later in 1890 of a heart attack while hard at work on his latest translation. His wife arranged for the couple's burial in a remarkable tomb shaped like a Bedouin tent in South London, surrounded by artifacts of his explorations. What is Burton's legacy? He inspired a generation of adventure literature, a lot of the Victorian era uh, Stories about adventures in remote parts of the world uh, were based either loosely or explicitly on his life story. Uh, numerous biographies have been written about him. He's appeared in many works of fiction, not only in the Victorian area, but up through the present day. Uh, he was one of the main protagonists in uh, a famous science fiction classic, Riverworld. So he's a, he's a figure that has continued to fascinate for well over a century after his death. And though he's not as widely known today as he was at the end of his own life, uh, I think the DNA of his life story is still deeply ingrained in Western culture. The character Indiana Jones is Burton's spiritual grandson. This is really any sort of adventurer explorer that pops up in, uh, in fiction. Burton was well ahead of the curve of cultural evolution, both in his interest in other cultures and in his rebellion against authority. 
Many of his ideas emphasizing individual freedom and experimentation were a century ahead of their time. Burton's greatest legacy may be in giving the world an example of someone living life completely on their own terms and having a whole lot of fun doing it. He explored not because anyone told him to, not for fortune. He never made much money doing it. But because he wanted to see everything, experience everything, and know as many different ways of living as he could pack into a human lifetime. He wanted to squeeze as much life out of life as possible, and he did. Numerous people have commented that he packed as much into his lifetime as any dozen other people each one of whom you would say had an exciting life. I can't do better than to conclude with Burton's own advice for living life. The language is a little bit dated, but I think the underlying advice still resonates. Do what thy manhood bids thee do, and from none but self expect applause. <laughs>